it's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZ Tech Show. My name is Kay and my co-host today is Laura. Welcome, Laura. Hello. Good morning. How are you, Kay? Good, good. Today we'll be talking to Associate Professor Alistair Sproul who is a lecturer and postgraduate coordinator in the School of Photovoltaic and Renewable Energy Engineering at the University of New South Wales. He is also a program leader with the Low Carbon Living Cooperative Research Centre and co-author of a recent study that found that ducted air conditioning and swimming pools are the biggest electricity users in residential homes. He joins us on the phone from the University of New South Wales today. Hello, Alistair. Oh, hi, Kay. Hi, Laura. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Good. Thanks, Alistair. Thanks for joining us. No problem. You've had an impressive career in the solar industry, working in companies such as BP Solar, Pacific Solar and Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. How did you come to work in the renewable energy energy industry? Well, look, I think I'm a very fortunate person. I was, um, when I was in high school in the, uh, I guess in the 70s, I was interested in maths and science and all of that sort of thing. And then uh, around the time in the sort of mid to late 70s, globally, we were experiencing the first oil shock. And so there was a lot of that happening around the time and in the newspapers and in the school curriculum, you know, science, I can Mm -hmm. remember in year 10, sort of looking at these sorts of things. So so I started to get interested in renewable energy back then. And and I just, I, I, I did what I, you know, I followed my heart really and said, well, I want to, I want to study maths and physics and I'll see if that can land me a job in renewable energy. And when I'd finished maths and physics in 1984, my first job was BP Solar in Sydney, in Brookvale in those days, doing solar cells. So I was a very lucky boy. I, I lived near Brookvale at the time. So I uh, used to turn up to work and work on solar cells. So I, just pure luck in that sense. Wow. Yeah, it's been a passion of mine for, well, it's crazy, 30 years. So 30 years I've been working in renewables, well, photovoltaics and efficiency. Wow, that's fantastic. Not many people can get that sort of opportunity. And I certainly um, connect with you on what was happening with the oil crisis in the 70s and and um, how that changed the, the whole energy environment, didn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, look, what happened then was, you know, oil prices reached what would be today US $100 a barrel. Once oil reaches that sort of level, people's hip pocket nerve is getting hit. Petrol prices like we have today should be up around about $1.50 a litre to really reflect the true cost environmentally, etc., of, of extracting oil and burning oil. So when it gets to $100 a barrel, we start to scratch our heads and think, should we do, do something different? So in the 70s, we, we shrank the size of our cars and drove more fuel-efficient vehicles for a little while. And, uh, and then someone invented the four-wheel drive. <laughs> and the price of oil came down and we thought, right, 
<laughs> no problems with oil, off we go. <laughs> but uh, that's that's a bit of a, you know, we were suffering from being very short-sighted. We should have learnt the lesson back in the 70s and the 80s that oil's a one-off and we've got to do something different. We learnt that lesson and then forgot it again. Absolutely, absolutely. So getting on to your current work role, can you tell us a bit about the role, your role now in the government-funded Low Carbon Living Cooperative Research Centre and yeah, give us a bit of an sure. overview on the projects at the CRC? Sure. Look, the CRC for Low Carbon Living, as you're saying, federally funded, so that's great. We also get a cash input from industry. So what the CRCs, the cooperative research centres, do is bring together industry, government, research organisations, university, CSIRO, and we've got six universities, well, five universities plus CSIRO around the country working in this space together with industry partners and government looking at buildings, precincts, cities, communities. How do we, how do we, uh, what are the questions we need to answer now so that our CRC partners can deliver low carbon outcomes in the future or in the very near future? Mm-hmm. Maybe I should give you a flavour of some of the projects. So this project that we're talking about today, we're analysing Ausgrid data from Smart Grid, Smart City data. So we're looking at all of, you know, 3,000 houses, half-hour interval electricity data over a year, survey data, trying to establish what drives electricity usage in residential Greater Sydney. And that's the sort of thing that we're doing, analysing where's the energy going, what's driving electricity, demand overall through the year, but also very importantly, what's the driving peak. But uh, yeah, so we're having, we've got a lot of insight into what goes on in that sort of space. Mm-hmm. And how did that recent study come about and who was it funded by? Well, yes, yeah, so the Smart Grid, Smart City project was a big project that was funded again through the federal government and through Ausgrid and, and other organisations were involved in that. So that was a rollout of smart meters and various other things. So that was a real trial to sort of try out a whole lot of things, but basically also gathering data. And the great thing about that was the data was made publicly available, still is publicly available through Smart Grid, Smart City website. So universities like us and funding bodies like the CRC, we said to them, we'd like to you know, put some time and energy and effort into analysing the data a lot of utilities, electricity utilities, they're very interested in peak demand, but we're also interested in looking further than just the peak demand. We're interested in looking at the carbon and the energy and what drives all of that. So uh, that's our first paper that we've, we've put out is just on average energy, so average over the year. But we can look at it throughout the year and say what, what are the drivers throughout the year. Professor Alistair, I wanted to ask you some questions about the current residential electricity usage. Sure. Um, your, your study titled The Statistical Analysis of Driving Factors of Residential Energy Demand in Greater Sydney Region. It was published in an international journal. Can you tell us about the current state of electricity usage in the residential sector? For example, like what's the average daily electricity usage of a sure. household? Yeah, look, we, we surveyed 3,000 houses in Sydney, well, the, the data from the Smart Grid Smart Cities. The average usage is about 20 kilowatt hours a day, something like that, about well, 19 to 20 kilowatt hours a day. What's interesting, though, is to look at that's average. 
Now, there are some houses out there in the survey that were using six times that average, 120 mm. uh, to 125 kilowatt hours a day. So, so there's some houses out there, very large houses, pulling lots of energy into the network. So, yeah, so, um, but all those houses together there, what we looked at was can we understand their, their average usage? And what we found was winter heat demand in Sydney, like using ducted air mm. conditioning or split air conditioning, they're the dominant ones. Also, pool pumps are in there, clothes dryers as well, but, but definitely ducted air conditioning, split system air conditioning and pool pumps, mm. uh, as well as refrigerators, of course. You know, the more refrigerators people have, the more electricity they're going to use. So all of those things are up there as drivers for overall usage. But the interesting thing was was that it was really winter usage drives your, you know, most of your energy. And people from Victoria would know that as well. Your winters are when your energy bills are highest because of the, on average, it's cooler outside than the comfortable temperatures inside our homes. So we we tend to heat more in winter, using more energy in winter than we use in summer. Summer in Australia on the coast where most of us live can be pretty pleasant with occasional spikes into really hot days. Now, when those really hot days hit, then we're getting peak demand and that peak demand then really goes up quite high. It's not what drives overall energy. It's short and sharp and very high demand, mm. uh, but that's also then a problem. So, um, It's the, yeah. the inefficiency of the ducted heating that... We still rely on through the winter. Um, well, yeah, maybe it's not so much the inefficiency, but maybe we're just either... It could be partially. We have to do some more work to mm. find out whether these systems are inefficient or just too big. You know, like if you're if it's a cold day and you're, you're heating lots of your house or we've just got poor housing. We know that most of the Australian housing stock is relatively poor thermally mm-hmm. because no, no, nothing in the Australian building code about energy. There was nothing in the Australian Building Code until 2006. Most countries around the world, back to the oil crisis in the 70s and the 80s, started to think, let's do something about our energy usage in homes. And they started to put energy requirements in their building code from the late 70s to the 80s. So UK, Germany, California, Japan, etc. All had something to say about their buildings with energy. But Australia, we didn't do that until 2006. So we've got some of the worst buildings thermally amongst developed nations. Mm. What was the methodology and the data set that you used in your recent analysis? Okay, so good question. What we needed to do was just to build a model that says this is a parameter. We had a survey. The Smart Grid Smart City also had a survey. So it asked people questions like, do you have gas? Do you have gas hot water? What sort of dwelling do you have? Is it a standalone residence? Is it a, a unit? Do you have an air conditioning unit? Is it etc. etc. You know, ducted split system? Do you have a pool? So all those questions were answered as part of the survey. So for every household, then we had the survey questions and answers, and then we had the data, half hourly data over a year. So then we built a mathematical model that says, well, okay, let's test. Is household energy usage proportional to someone having ducted air conditioning? And the answer there was yes. 
Is it proportional to how cold it is outside? Yes, it's proportional to that. So then we can use the model to fit to the data and get all these proportionality constants and all of that in there. So we just work out a mathematical model that says, okay, if you've got these particular characteristics of a house, can we predict the average usage? And the model works very well at doing that. Mm. And so some of the, the pre-existing data, it obviously provided lots of limitations. And how does this sort of statistical modelling provide more of a comprehensive analysis of the residential electricity de- demand? Did you, did you have to obtain data from all of Greater Western Sydney? How many houses did you obtain data from? Yeah, yeah. So because this study was through Ausgrid, which is a, uh, an energy company, poles and wires company, essentially, in, in Sydney region, their region is northern Sydney, mostly, and reaching up towards Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. So that's where our data comes from. So we sampled 3,000 houses from that region. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, a fair few within Greater Western Sydney giving a, a good understanding. Just for our listeners who just tuned in, uh, you're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. Our guest today is Alastair, sorry, Professor Alastair Sproul, and we're discussing the recent study titled Statistical Analysis and Driving Factors of Residential Energy Demand in Greater Sydney Region in Australia. Alastair, I just wanted to move on to some of your study results. Can you explain some of the major findings in the study? Yeah, so... I think the major thing was that ducted air conditioning and pool pumps in particular are big energy users. At least people who respond in the survey and say this is what they have, we find that their energy usage is significantly larger than people who don't have uh, these sorts of appliances or who respond and say they don't have them. So that can add 50% to the average bill putting a ducted air conditioning system in or a pool pump. So. We suspected that this was always going to be an issue, but it's, it's, this is probably the first time that we've had real hard, fast data to see that. The other thing is that we can now see, and we haven't yet published this, but it's very interesting to see. We can see ducted air conditioning on peak demand in summer is really driven by, in residential, the residential sector, we see an enormous increase in the peak demand, and that's being driven again by air conditioning and also to a certain extent pool pumps so there's a lot of a lot of good things we can do about that for example pool pumps pool pumps are running all year but they're also running during peak time so i would advocate there are now nine star seven eight and nine star energy efficient pool pumps out there that cost probably a little more than your typical fixed speed pool pump but these variable speed pool pumps can save you 70 to 80 percent of 70 to 80 percent of the um, energy that's going into a pool pump and they'll pay for themselves in probably under two years. People who've got a pool are suffering from big price electricity rises recently. They can alleviate that to a large extent and do, do something good for the environment by um, putting in a more energy efficient pool pump. Similarly for the ducted air conditioning systems, I think a lot of homes in Australia were built when energy seemed to be cheap and when we had no building code about energy. So we've got buildings that have got 
single glazing, no shading, facing west, picking up summer sun, all of these sorts of things we could address by shading externally to the building. If you've got a chance to renovate your home, fix, fix things up so that they, uh, your house improves in terms of heat loss or heat gain, bit of insulation, better windows. I, I would always say, look at windows. Windows are the weakest point, so mm, I would always advocate double glazing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so there's lots of, um, lots of things for the consumer and the, those who own residential homes to do to start making their homes more efficient, using less energy. What I, what I was wondering is how has combining the electricity readings with the matched individual household survey data, how is that going to help policymakers understand the future demand of residential electricity? Well, that's a good thing. You know, we've got some... Sometimes you'll hear people... In, in the electricity industry saying that we should have, you know, that solar power systems, etc., should be paying more, or we hear that people say things like uh, there should be no energy efficiency requirements for uh, in the marketplace for appliances. So I would disagree very strongly with that. I think what this sort of study shows is that we can, if we, if we were smart, we would move towards higher energy efficiency standards on all our appliances. We would move towards higher efficiency standards for all of our buildings. We would look at, seriously look at, retrofitting, giving people good information, good pathways to retrofit their buildings to minimise their energy usage. We've just spent around Australia, probably over the last five or so years or more, about $50 billion to improve poles and wires to make sure that the power electricity network can handle peak demand. Mm. Peak only occurs, you know, the top 10, 20, 30% of what we use in residential sector from electricity occurs for about 1% of the year. Mm, lots of infrastructure for energy that we may not, not need into the future. Well, and also that we're, that, that's only going to recover the cost. How do you recover the cost mm. of $50 billion from something that's only being used 1% of the time? Would we have been better off, and are we better off still, to tackle the inefficiency of our buildings, the inefficiency of our heating and cooling systems, all of those sorts of inefficiencies in pools, refrigerators, energy standards, all of these things can reduce our energy bills, reduce our peak demand, reduce our need to spend money on the network and reduce carbon, and then we can have a chance of, you know, looking our children and grandchildren in the eye and say, we were serious, we seriously had a go mm. at reducing our carbon footprint. Alistair, getting on to the application side of things and, and the data that you've generated, how are these research results going to be used in your work? Well, look, yeah, so we're, we're looking now, now that we've got a good understanding of where the energy is being used in the residential sector, we can start to use that model to say, well, what if? What if? What if we start to encourage greater uptake of efficiency in the residential sector? What if we encourage greater uptake of photovoltaics? What happens when we, do we reach a point where bringing down demand, what happens with peak? Can we help address peak? Do we need to, for example, install more photovoltaics facing towards the west so that in the summer we're helping? That's when 
summer afternoons is when we're getting a lot of demand, even into summer evenings. Mm-hmm. What happens if we consider, what if we put in batteries? Batteries are coming down in price. Small amounts of battery storage could help us enormously. Small amounts of thermal storage. So if a building has solar power on the roof and an air conditioning system for cooling or for heating, if we can predict that a peak is coming or that cold weather's coming, we can heat and cool our houses while we've got the sunshine, store that heat into our building as much as possible. So preheat, pre-cool while we've got solar on our rooftops. All sorts of things. We can, we can look at all sorts of scenarios. And our aim always is to say, can we do this with lower carbon? So could you use this information to show some of the changes in energy usage on a yearly basis so that people can become more aware of their consumption and reduce their energy needs? We have, we have another project. Uh, we're working with a, a company called Solar Analytics. And, yeah, for a, for a small fee, they will monitor your household energy consumption. They will also monitor, if you've got solar, they'll monitor your solar uh, rooftop system. And what we're working on with them is to come up with better and better algorithms that allow us to say, well, how well is your house performing? How how much energy are you using? Is that typical for what you've used in the past? Is that typical for the time of day, for the weather outside, etc.? Same for the solar. Can we say, hey, your solar system's working well, or is your solar system perhaps not performing as well as it should, or is your solar system performing really well? So I think giving customers, uh, householders, information about their energy and telling them, hey, look, maybe, maybe something's been left on. We think it might be your pool pump. We think it might be your air conditioning system. We think, uh, etc. or, you know, you've left the oven on. Something like that. If we could give information back to householders and tell them, give them tips as to what they could do to help reduce their energy usage, how to use energy more effectively, shift load from if they've got a solar system, if they've got excess solar, rather than giving it to the grid, rather than getting paid perhaps six cents or less per kilowatt hour, they might be able to shift load to make better use of their solar. Help plan for battery usage. You know, we could um, look at, you know, is it a good idea to be charging your batteries, discharging your batteries when batteries start to become cost-effective. So we've got that other project and a lot of this a lot of this data will help inform that project as well. Mm-hmm. In your report, there was a question asked about how can we ensure that households undertaking energy efficiency activities or putting solar home systems in are not penalised for doing the right thing in saving both money and the environment and while still ensuring we all fairly contribute towards reliable and security supply. Do you have any thoughts on how that can happen, And given that maybe that's not the driver for retailers? Yeah, look, it's a, I think it's a conversation that we need to have. We need to have some sensible conversations about how we go into the future with our electricity network and our energy systems for the future. You know, I think here's the, the flip side. People are saying now that, you know, if you're using less energy, then you're a burden on the grid. Now, that seems quite strange to me. Mm. I would point to the to the work that we've done here and say, well, hang on, we can see that it is the large energy users that are, of course, driving expenditure on greater and greater poles and wires. So $50 billion of expenditure was put into the grid to meet customers who have got 
inefficient homes with air conditioning, etc., and you know, inefficient homes through the winter, drawing lots of energy through the grid. So at the moment, it seems perverse, but we're, we're rewarding inefficiency and building big systems to power inefficient buildings. I think we need to have a better conversation around that and say, well, hang on, if people use less, that really should be rewarded because there's a diminishing demand or a less demand on the grid means that we don't need to build more and more capacity into the grid. Or the other flip side of that is that people who are saving energy on the grid by being more efficient, chances are, as we move away from burning petrol, and perhaps as we move away from burning gas, we may actually see more efficient use of electricity start to increase. So I'm happy for if, if people are using electricity but using it more efficiently, and I'm particularly happy if we can find a way that we can get more and more green electricity into the grid. So there's a nice, I think, what we, we need the grid because we can't necessarily have all the photovoltaics and battery systems saying, well, we'll go off-grid this is some, some people are discussing this, but you know, five or six days in the middle of winter or cloudy days, it's going to be a challenge to be off-grid if you're totally disconnected from the grid. And not everybody wants to go out then and fire up a, a petrol generator or have those things. Do we want, is that what we want? Do we want our suburbs having petrol generators in the backyard or diesel generators or gas generators making lots of noise in the backyard? I, I think the grid is a good thing, and I think it gives us the ability to put wind turbines out in the countryside, feed that electricity into the grid and uh, when balance it out between you know, solar on the rooftop and, and wind out in the country, we can then uh, have a good system and a little bit of storage will help to um, level all of that out. Yep. We're running out of time, Alastair, but um, just quickly, would you also be looking at doing a report in Victoria and South Australia because the climatic conditions are a little bit different there? Look, we think, yeah, it's, the challenge for us is getting data out of the electricity utilities. They don't always have this data publicly available, so it's, a, it's an ongoing discussion. We would love to have more data, and, and colleagues of ours in Melbourne and South Australia would also love to analyse data in their own part of Australia. So I think the answer is yes, we'd love to do it. I think the challenge is that we just need to make sure we can get that data and, and getting this sort of survey data is definitely a challenge because you need the money to be put into yeah. the survey. So, <laughs> it always comes back to that, doesn't it? And at the moment, probably probably there's not so much interest coming from uh, certain sectors of, of government that want to know this information. But okay. when we do, we, we are getting I'm a lot sorry, of interest Alistair, from We're going to have to interrupt you. Um, we've run out of time, no unfortunately. Worries. Thank you so much for that. It's been very, very interesting. Great. Well, look, good to talk to you both. Okay. Thanks, Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.